You're listening to the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Steppen, and this is Episode 8. Welcome to the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. So glad you can join us. Today's show is going to focus on non-speech oral motor exercises. Now, to be brief, non-speech oral motor exercises, that's a mouthful, are essentially mouth exercises that a clinician might use independent of working directly on speech sounds. So this might include, for example, puckering the lips, blowing bubbles, uh, etc., and uh, if you're a practicing speech pathologist, you're probably aware of the attention that the subject has received over the past 10 years. Um, we'll get more into that in my recorded conversation with my guest, Dr. Gregory Loff. He's a professor of speech pathology who has published and spoken and speaks widely on this subject. Uh, and I want to tell you that when I first conceived of a podcast, this subject of non-speech world motor exercises was up there in my short list of uh, top programming ideas. But um, I was also hesitant to even go down this road for a reason many of you can guess. And that reason is, of course, that this subject is a controversial one. Uh, it's not controversial to me, mind you, but to a number of speech pathologists who believe, that, who believe in these exercises, and you know, many of which are branded under different program names and related products. Um, but today's episode is it's not about criticism. Uh, rather, it's about clarification. Uh, you see, it's my feeling from reading various discussion forums, blog posts, etc., that there is a misconception as to what Dr. Loff and his colleagues are actually saying in their research and presentations. You know, in the end, you might, you may not agree with everything Dr. Loff is saying in today's episode, but my hope is that you at least have a clearer understanding as to where he's coming from. So thanks for having an open mind, and let's get to that conversation with Dr. Loff. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining me at Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I'm here with Dr. Gregory Loft today. He is professor of communication sciences and disorders, actually the chair of the department at the MGH Institute of Health Professions. I hope I got that right, Dr. Loft. That's correct. Okay. And you told me before I can call you Greg, so I'm not being rude to you. That's um, fine too. Okay. So uh, I've been, you know, we just to give the audience a little background. We've been playing phone tag for a while, and we finally had the opportunity to talk on the phone about why I wanted you on the podcast, and that was to talk about a major area of your work, your career, and that is non-speech oral motor exercises. Um, so what I was hoping you would do for me, Greg, first is to describe or define what is a non-speech oral motor exercise. Well, there are a number of different definitions out there in the literature. Um, I probably... I'm not going to quote exactly what has been said in the past, but it's basically um, any type of speech movement, I'm sorry, any type of mouth movement that is done in the attempt to change speech sound productions without using speech to change speech sound productions, something like that. Okay, so that's the gist of it. I guess what I wanted to... Um... Well, for, actually, first, before we started going down this road, I want to know how you got interested in, in studying this aspect of speech pathology. <laughs> you know, that's an interesting question. You know, I, a number of years ago, many years ago, probably now 15 or so, 
um, I started seeing things happening in our field about people talking about these different procedures that were being used that were kind of non-traditional or they were not the standard way of changing speech sound productions. And there were a lot of kits that were being sold and a lot of claims being made that by doing certain mouth tasks, um, that speech sound productions would change. And that just didn't seem like it would fit with anything I knew or had studied in my work with my PhD and as a clinician. And so I kind of started thinking, well, what is going on here? And how did this all happen? And what are these different exercises? And why are they purported to work? And uh, why are clinicians buying into this? And so I just kind of started looking into this and probably around in the um, late, mid to late 90s. Um, And I started just, um, then I actually ran into a colleague of mine. uh, Her name is um, Maggie Watson at the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point. And she and I would have many, many discussions over the phone. And she was seeing the same thing happening, that a lot of people were going to workshops. People were um, doing things that just didn't seem to fit with what we knew from the research. And so she and I said, you know, why don't we find out what's going on out there in the world of clinical practice. And so we developed a survey um, that has been published now a number of years ago um, that tried to get at what are be- who are using non-speech oral motor exercises, what exercises are being used, and why are people using them. And also, interestingly enough, looking at why the people who aren't using them, why they aren't using them. So I, I just was kind of something that happened in clinical practice that kind of uh, interested me because it just didn't fit right with what I believed. Mm-hmm. What do you think, what have most people misinterpreted about your research? <laughs> I, that's, <laughs> that's a tough question. Yeah. Um, well, I think some of the questions that oftentimes get, I get asked is, um, the whole idea of non-speech or motor exercise, people get confused on, you know, if I wag the tongue, is that a non-speech or motor exercise versus if I do a phonetic placement cue, is that a non-speech or motor exercise? That's one of the areas that people seem to kind of get confused about. Um, also, I think a lot of people get confused about looking at how, or understanding how non-speech things are represented in the brain versus how speech tasks are represented in the brain. Just because a mouth moves, if its mouth is moving for speech and the mouth is moving for something that's non-speech, they're represented differently in the brain. And I think people get kind of confused by things like that, too. Yeah. Well, it goes back to, I remember my graduate school days, and one of the first things we learned was that speech itself is an overlaid process, and uh, you can isolate or separate aspects of it, but uh, to look at one system only, uh, especially when you're you're talking about something like phonological disorders, uh, I think can really backfire on you. Well, I think that's one of the keys, is that um, speech is a cognitive, linguistic, motor act. And when you start parceling out just the motor act or the cognitive act or the linguistic act, you're going to get into trouble because speech is an integration of cognitive, linguistic, 
motor acts. And they, um, once you start, they have to be integrated, not disintegrated. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember uh, in one of your papers I came across recently, you talked about, you've done some surveying of uh, SLPs out there using non-speech oral motor exercises, but you also, in one paper, talked about uh, graduate school education and the percentage of students who uh, were were not exposed to non-speech oral motor exercises. Now, I can say, I don't know if this speaks for uh, many of the SLPs out there, in graduate school, we knew of them, but we were not taught formally any of those uh, types of exercises. But uh, I was wondering if you can speak to uh, if, if you, if there's anything, uh, recent or what your most research, recent research, uh, states about, uh, the prevalence of teaching non-speech oral motor exercises in graduate school programs. Yeah. One of a study, I think it was Watson and Loff, I'm not even sure what year it was. We did a, another survey to ask, um, professors who teach about speech sound disorders, do you teach the use of non-speech oral motor exercises? And we found that 75% of the speech pathology professors are not teaching it. They're saying that it, you know, they're following the evidence-based practice, and the evidence shows that they don't work. We did find that about 25% of the professors are using, are teaching students to use some form of non-speech oral motor exercises. But by far, the vast majority of um, university programs are following the evidence-based practice models that show you know, using evidence to guide practice and that it doesn't work. I guess the next question, I'm going to beat you to it, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> then why are speech pathologists using them? Yes. Um, and um, part of another follow-up was um, how, how so many people are have learned about these procedures through continuing education events. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of continuing age, education events, most state require you to obtain a number of continuing education units in order to maintain your license. So people are out searching for many different continuing education events. And um, our study was showing that a large number of people who are use non-speech oral motor exercises have learned about them through these continuing ed events. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think this would be a good place to, I- I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I've uh, read websites and through uh, discussion forums, uh, some of the proponents for the use of uh, non-speech oral motor exercises, and I and I've really seen uh, just a broad spectrum of opinions. Um, just the other day, I was reading someone's opinion, someone taking issue with the term non-speech oral motor exercise, um, that it's an invented term. Not sure exactly what that argument means in and of itself, but uh, I, I'm guessing somehow that it has a, a negative connotation. And somewhere in that same uh, passage... Aren't all terms invented, though, Jeff? <laughs> yeah, well, that was going to get to that, yes. <laughs> but the other part of that is um, I, I sort of see a contradiction in the writings where you might see the same author write that, well, everything we do is really comes back to speech. Um, and so even though you're calling this non-speech oral motor exercise, it really does work on speech in the end and that we're not ignoring or saying we're not treating the sound because eventually that is our goal. I mean, I don't know if you have anything to and say if, about if that. If, but... your end, if your end goal is speech, then why not work on speech immediately instead of working on things that only 
appear to be working on speech. That's the problem right there. Mm -hmm. um, No sound is created by wagging tongues, for example. So why wag a tongue? Um, That's not what, that's a movement that's never used in speech. Why elevate your tongue tip to your your nose or or lower it to your chin? We don't make any speech sounds that do that. Um, Whistling and blowing horns and all of those isn't anything like what we do in speech. So why would you practice those things? Because that's not what you do for speaking. So I guess um, why why do anything in therapy if it's not meeting your end goal? Well, here's yeah, which is speech and changing. Yeah, but I do have another question actually leading to that, uh, and I thought of it this morning. Um, most of the folks out there, at least the ones that I've come across who have oromotor based programs, all talk about that hierarchy where the jaw is the base of support, and they're talking about tongue jaw differentiation and the premise is that you need to work on these in a multi-tiered uh, system, if you will. And I'm wondering, do you take issue with that premise? Well, there's really, I don't, if you look in the research, there's nothing about jaw grading and things like that. Um, those are just kind of hypotheses that um, you'll see. But otherwise, there's nothing in the literature about jaw grading um, that I have ever read um, so I think if you're going to work on the jaw, work on the jaw as it pertains to speaking, not working on the jaw that's that's has nothing to do with speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I right now I'm not even thinking about how I'm moving my jaw, um, and I'm talking to you right now. Um, what we should be working on is working on speech um, and the conscious level of moving jaws or dissociating jaw from tongue movements, um, that'll just, that's, that'll just happen as you're starting to work on speech. Mm-hmm. And so those, those movements don't necessarily need to be isolated or layered upon each other. Well, there's some research that actually shows that by isolating things, it actually hinders learning. Um, Karen Forrest has some good information on um, the, the whole idea of dissociating very complicated and um, interrelated activities by breaking them apart actually can diminish learning, not enhance learning. Okay. Now, I just want to go back to something you said when we first started our conversation, just to make sure people are aware. You don't have anything against uh, phonetic placement cues, correct? No, no. um, I have nothing wrong with saying, you know, kiddo, um, there's your alveolar ridge. Let me Put a little piece of peanut butter on your alveolar ridge. Put your tongue right up there, and now say the sound. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. We um, tongue. There's plate. Every sounds have placements. Most sounds have placements. Vowels, of course, don't have very good placement cueing. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I think phonetic placement cueing is very different than oral motor exercise. Now, if you had a kid keep on over taking the tongue tip and moving it to the alveolar ridge, one, two. Three moving up to the alveolar ridge. Now that would be a non-speech motor exercise. Putting the tongue to the alveolar ridge so the kid gets a placement cueing, that's just fine. There's some really good techniques for doing that, and there's some really good instrumentation um, devices out there now. Electropalatography, for example, could be considered a phonetic placement cueing um, mm-hmm. system as well. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm working on an episode right now about uh, the smart palate system. Uh, that device. I don't know if you're aware about that. 
Well, there's been um, electropalatography has been around for 30, 40, 50 years, and it's been sure. always been shown to work very well. Yeah. For yeah. certain kids, mm-hmm. especially kids who have a certain level of meta awareness. A lot of the young kids can't use those, of course, because they don't have the sense of mouth. You know, it's been called a meta mouth. You know, kids don't know what's going on in their mouths. Yeah. And so um, until you get a certain level of um, cognitive awareness about phonetic placements, those cues are not going to be very beneficial. Yeah. Okay. So I also was wondering if you can talk a little bit about the challenges and the the barriers towards working on and breaking down uh, sounds into individual component movements. But, of course, someone's going to be out there listening to this saying, well, for many of our kids, they're going to, be, they're going to have uh, low tone, and that's something we need to work on, which I would retort, low tone is not the same thing as strength. Low tone is not the same thing as strength. Um, strength and tone, in fact, you can't, by working on strength, it's not going to change tone. Um, you know, tone and strength are different things. We hear a lot of different therapists, a lot of occupational therapists, physical therapists talk about low tone, but, um, tone really has no impact on strength. Tone is, um, um, what it's like at rest, not at when you're making the movements. Mm -hmm. Uh, the last thing I wanted to bring up on my uh, list of uh, retorts. This is something that I read. Uh, someone going back to Charles Van Riper, who most of our listeners is going to know is sort of the uh, godfather of speech pathology. At least I'll call him that. And it was said in this in one piece that he has he had written extensively on the use of, I guess, what you would call non speech oral motor exercises. We talked a little bit on the phone about that uh, before this podcast. I was hoping you can share those thoughts here. Well, I never had the privilege of meeting Van Riper. I know a number of people have, and he was an amazing godfather of our field. However, you got to remember that Van Riper did no studies, none. And so it's all, you know, what basically, um, just because it, it, Van, by saying Van Riper said is a, the major form of hearsay, because mm-hmm. Van Riper, you heard what Van Riper said, you read his old works. And remember, his old works were not studies. His studies were no were not evidence. It was a wonderful clinician who did things, but there were no studies. There was no evidence to back up what he was saying. So you know, it's great that he gave a lot of good information or gave information, but it um, it doesn't really. If there's no studies to show it, then all he's saying is hearsay. I have an article out that just came out in 2013, and it's called Don't Blow This Therapy Session. Yeah. And what I did is I traced back blowing uh, for um, velopharyngeal incompetency, and a lot of the data early on was not data. What was early on was clinicians who said, well, blowing works. Let's do blowing. However, in the 60s, they showed that blowing didn't work. And as soon as you show the data and have evidence, then we have to kind of put aside what our grandfathers told us and take into a, take into consideration what the data are showing, not just what our forefathers said and believed without data. Now that brings up uh, another interesting article that I think uh, 
I can't read this a couple of days ago of yours, where you uh, talk about evidence-based practice and how clinician uh, preferences or uh, fit into all this, and that how we're not using uh, evidence-based practice uh, in its uh, most robust form, but that we're relying on first-hand accounts, first-hand accounts, and uh, uh, opinions of other uh, thought leaders within the speech pathology community. Um, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, I, I'm a skeptic, and some people think being a skeptic is a bad thing. I think being a skeptic is a good thing. I think we have to be skeptical of anything that we see and observe without testing it. Um, just because we see something works doesn't mean that it really does work. Um, we can hope things work. We can um, maturation has a strong impact. So it may not even have anything to do with what we are doing. Um, so we have to be very skeptical um, that we aren't falling prey to um, to some of the um, pseudoscience that goes on in our field. And we're not the only ones susceptible to pseudoscience. The medical field and all of the helping fields are um, having to deal with pseudoscience all the time. We see this with the um, people who don't vaccinate their children or uh, mm -hmm. people who thought that facilitated communication worked. All of those things appeared, you know, facilitated communication appears to work, but as soon as you test it, it shows that it doesn't work. So we have to be very careful just because we do something and there's a change that we can't contribute always what, that the change occurred because of something we did without actually testing it. Otherwise, you'll fall prey to this pseudoscience and yeah, uh, yeah, you have to be careful on that. Well, it's well, it's certainly it's, uh, the, evident that the onus is on uh, the folks practicing non-speech motor exercises. exercises. It sounds, it sounds like, like from your uh, perspective that it's sort of a uh, more or less a case closed kind of issue. But I, one of the biggest uh, arguments that I do hear from the other side, I shouldn't call it the other side, from folks who purport that non-speech motor exercises work, is that there just simply hasn't been enough research. We haven't had those big randomized control uh, studies. And I was wondering if you can speak to that. You know, I've been working with children with speech sound disorders for my whole life. Um, and so I always say to my students, would Greg Loff ever change what he's saying about non-speech or motor exercises? And of course, the students who get A's say, yes, you would change your mind. And the ones who get C's would say, no, you would never change your mind. Um, the ones that say, yes, you would change your mind and would get an A in my class are, I'd say, what would make, what would change what I say? And of course, that's evidence. Mm -hmm. um, and as soon as the evidence is clear that, uh, wouldn't it be wonderful if a certain technique for a certain population at a certain age was effective? That's what we've all are looking for. Um, but without having the data, we can't say those things. And so I think, wouldn't it be great if we have the data? One of the problems that I have also, though, is um, what happens if Pfizer came out with a drug that cured cancer? And um, they told us it cured cancer. They didn't do any studies that it cured cancer. But they said, you know what? We're going to sell this drug. You go ahead and buy it. And if you want to, you can go ahead and study it, but you don't have to because we just told you that it worked. But we'd all go, no, Pfizer should be shot. There's no way we should buy those drugs. 
because they need to test it before you sell it. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't happen in our field of speech pathology. Things get promoted, things get sold, and things get pushed without having any data to back up that it works other than hearsay and do it. I told you to. Others have tried it. They love it. They love what I say. It works. Well, <laughs> that's not good enough for me. Yeah. So I want to I want to uh, finish with uh, that uh, survey. I believe it was in 2008, where you found that 85 uh, percent, I think it was, of all SLPs were using non-speech real motor exercises. Is that correct? Yeah, that data was. It's a little bit older now, but it seems yeah. like there. Um, when you look at some of the other data from like ASHA presentations and other presentations, that that number is holding pretty strong in the seventies. In Canada, it's happening. In India, uh, in Ireland, yeah. So that number is probably quite high. It still is, I think. Do you do you sense is there any change afoot, or is this you think it's pretty constant and steady? Well, all I can say is when I do my presentations, because I kind of travel throughout the world giving presentations, and um, people are much more open to it. They aren't throwing tomatoes at me like they once were. <laughs> um, um, I think people are open to think about it, about uh, just because someone said something doesn't mean that it actually happens. I think people are more, uh, I think people are understanding evidence-based practice much better that we've got to have data. Our, ther our therapies have to follow well-established theories. Um, I think people are much more um, uh, questioning and that's part of being a good skeptic. Mm -hmm. is questioning and continuing to search and try to find out what is as close to the truth as we can ever get. Yeah. Well, I've always said that I think one of the one of the hardest things about our field is that someone uh, had this quote not too read not too long ago about how the 20th century was really about uh, biological sciences and the 21st century is really more about brain science. It's sort of the next frontier in that I think, you know, one can only hope and expect that speech pathology as a field will really mushroom and blossom as we know more about mechanisms like speech and language. Oh, I think I think it's an exciting time for us to be here right now. Um, I think we're going to start seeing some other good brain studies. and, um, and But until we have some of those, uh, what we do have are some good theories and um, models. And I think we need to follow those theories and models and not just follow hearsay. One of my favorite quotes, since you gave a quote, I'll give a quote, is um, no person is immune to hearing a not such a good idea and passing it along to someone else. And mm -hmm. I'm afraid we've been doing a lot of hearing bad ideas and passing it along from generation to generation of speech pathologists. And I'm very hopeful that the next generation of speech pathologists are going to be much more evidence-based, uh, much more brain science-based as well. Yeah, hope so. All right. I think we'll end there for today. Uh, I want to thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. You've been uh, very gracious about the whole process. Uh, it's been fun, Jeff. Thanks for inviting me. All right. My pleasure. Hope to have you on, actually, for an upcoming episode, a future one, uh, about speech sound disorders and developmental progressions. Oh, that'd put, be fun, we'll too. We'll put that in quotes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Jeff. Time. All right. Thank you so much, Greg. Have a good night. Good night. All right. Okay, that about wraps things up for today's episode. I again want to thank Dr. Gregory Law for generously sharing in his 
research and viewpoints on non-speech oral motor exercises with us today. Please do send those comments and questions to me at jeff at conversationsatspeech.com or you can just go to the website and post a comment there as well. Before I run, I just want to say thanks to all the listeners outside of the U.S., particularly in Australia. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Thank you.